So we're coming to the end of James. And if you go back to the very beginning of the letter of James, it is obvious that James wrote this letter with a deep sense of urgency. It's not like Paul's letters, if you want to make a comparison uh, of other New Testament books. Most of Paul's letters open with very elaborate salutations and prayers, not James. If you go back and look at the beginning of James, James opens his letter as briefly as possible. He quickly identifies himself as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He really cannot be any more compact in how he identifies himself. He's so compact that we're not even totally sure which James this is uh, in the New Testament. There were several uh, James uh, that were associated with Jesus and with the church in the apostolic era. Then he identifies his addressees, and again, he does so as briefly as possible. He calls them the 12 tribes of the dispersion. That's like the address on the envelope. This is who the letter is sent to, these Jewish Christians that have scattered out in what was called the dispersion or the diaspora. Then he says, greetings. It is a one-word salutation, and then he gets right down to business. Because James is writing this letter as a man on a mission. He's got an agenda. And so right away, he launches into his first topic, which is how to deal with trials and responding to trials with joy. And then, of course, he goes from there. Now, today we come to the very end of James, and we actually find something rather similar. There's a kind of symmetry between the way James begins and the way he ends his letter. The letter ends just as abruptly as it began. Again, it's very different from how Paul ends his letters. If you look at a lot of Paul's letters, not every single one, but a lot of his letters, it's almost like Paul has a hard time bringing the plane in for a landing. It's just, it's so hard for Paul to say goodbye. And so he's piling up farewells and benedictions that can even go on for a full chapter or more. Whereas James, by contrast, just seems to end. (laughs) There's no indication you're getting to the end of the letter. No indication James is is wrapping things up. He doesn't say finally or, or, or one last point. It just seems to end. And so James gives you a one-word greeting at the beginning, and he doesn't really say goodbye at all. And you get this sense that the latter as a whole is filled with this deep sense of urgency. James clearly has an agenda. But here's the thing, as as abruptly as the letter seems to end, there really is a logic to the way James ends this letter. And it's crucial to see that. Because these last two verses in James 5 really do tie all of this letter together into a a neat package for us. Uh, These last two verses really tie everything together. And that's so crucial to see here. It does seem like the letter just ends. But actually this is a very fitting conclusion. It's a very fitting conclusion that, that ties it all together, that pulls everything together. Think about it this way. Throughout this letter, James has been making many demands on his readers. He's been putting many demands on the church. And yet here at the end, as we're going to see, he gives a very gracious, we could say grace-filled, very hopeful, hope-filled conclusion. Just the kind of conclusion you need when you've written a letter that makes so many demands, that might be so challenging, so convicting. In these verses, he calls on members of the church to lovingly correct one another, to pursue one who wanders from the truth and bring him back to the way of life. And James says, in doing so, when you pursue the wanderer, you can save his soul and through this act of love cover a multitude of sins. 
In essence, what James tells us to do here is what he has been doing all throughout this letter. Through this whole letter, he has been lovingly correcting his brothers in the church who have wandered from the truth, those who have strayed away. And he's doing so in such a way that they might be saved and that the multitude of their sins might be covered. James wrote this letter to bring back the wanderers, to save their souls from death, to cover the multitude of their sins. And now James tells the church, he tells us today to go and do the same. To go and do the same with others that we might save those who have wandered from the truth. That their multitude of sins might be covered through our ministry of grace and love to them. So let's look at the two sides of this. Uh, really two groups of people James is talking about here. Those who wander and those who save them. Those who wander from the truth and those who pursue the wanderers to save them, to restore them, uh, that their sins might be covered, that they might be saved. First, let's talk about these wanderers. Who are the wanderers? Well, clearly they are people in the church who have come to know the truth, or perhaps they grew up in the truth. They know the basic truth of the gospel and of scripture, but they have wandered from that truth. He says, my brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth, among you. He's talking here about brothers and sisters in the Lord, fellow church members. And his point is this, to make it really, really simple, his point is this, you are your brother's keeper. In the church, you are your brother's keeper. Remember the man who asked that question, am I my brother's keeper? That was Cain. Cain, the murderer. It's the murderer who seeks to evade responsibility for keeping his brother, for looking after his brother, caring for his brother. James here is calling on us to not be Cain's, but rather to be faithful members of the Christian community. He's calling on us to care for one another and look out for one another and love one another. And the reason is this, you will not persevere to the end in the faith without help from other Christians. And other Christians cannot persevere in the faith to the end without help from you. We need each other to make it. We can only make it to the end if we help one another along the way. You know, we sing the hymn every now and then, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It's got that line in it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's what James is talking about here. We are prone to wander. That's true of all of us. And so we must do what James says here. We must be a part of, of a community where this kind of thing is going to happen. We've got to have mutual accountability We've got to have correction, even confrontation. We have to be that kind of community if we're going to each stand firm to the end in the faith. I find this really, really interesting because so much of what James has written in this letter, and, and I know you've sensed this as I've preached through this letter, so much of what James has had to say in this letter deals with personal responsibility. You are responsible for yourself, for your life, for your choices. James has preached a message of personal responsibility. No question. That's something that's clear throughout Scripture. But James especially hammers it home. But then here at the very end, he gives us this element of corporate responsibility. You're responsible for yourself, but you're also responsible for others. You're responsible for yourself, but others are taking responsibility for you as well. That's how life works in the church. Personal responsibility is a real thing, but corporate responsibility is as well. 
Now, James speaks of those who wander from the truth. Wandering from the truth. Well, what truth does he have in mind? Certainly the truth of the gospel, or we could even say the truth of scripture as a whole. I think the word truth here is just a stand-in for the sum total of what God has revealed, the sum total of what scripture teaches. But, But keep this in mind, because we've seen this in James as well. For James, truth is not just a matter of ideas. It's not just a matter of doctrinal content. Truth is actually a way of life. The truth has to be embodied and practiced. Truth is ethical. It's not just doctrinal, it's ethical. It's not just ideas you might have in your head, but it's a way of life. It's got to be lived out. So wandering from the truth here certainly could mean departing from the content of what God has revealed in Scripture, that body of doctrine and teaching God has given to us, the the, the truth of God's Word. So it could be a doctrinal wandering, say somebody embracing false teaching. Or it could mean wandering from the true way of life revealed in God's word. It could mean disobedience to God's law, uh, adopting a way of life or habits or patterns that are contrary to how God has called us to live. Now, a lot of times, these two forms of wandering go together. In fact, many times someone will start to wander morally and then they'll start to wander theologically in order to justify their wandering morally. They've started to live a different kind of way. They've fallen into some kind of sin. They want to justify that. And so all of a sudden, they wander from the truth doctrinally. That happens quite a bit. Another term we could use to describe this kind of wandering is backsliding. That's really what James is talking about here. Christians who are backsliding, the backslidden Christian. Now, again, we could say, we could ask the question, why do Christians backslide? What does it mean to backslide? Well, Christians can backslide for many reasons. Sometimes it's a a pet sin, a secret sin that never gets dealt with that never gets confronted or confessed. And so eventually that secret sin grows and it can even take over a person's life. A lot of addictions, a lot of things that have become addictive started out this way. Small sins that went unchecked, unrepented of, and they grew into great big sins that took over a person's life. That's certainly one way Christians can backslide and wander. Here's another one. Christians can backslide. They can start to wander when they regularly miss church, when they regularly absent themselves from the gathering of the saints. Someone starts to drift from the communion of the saints. They start to drift away from the church, from attending church regularly, gathering with God's people regularly. And what do you know? In drifting from the church, they also drift from God. The book of Hebrews actually describes this, describes it at length. Let me just read you a few verses out of Hebrews 10. In Hebrews 10, we read this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Or we could put this in James language. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wandering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves to gather. So not forsaking going to church, gathering with God's people as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. 
in the book of Hebrews, and this is not the only example of this, but in the book of Hebrews, he equates forsaking the assembly with wavering in our confession of faith. The only way your confession of faith can stay strong is if you continue assembling with God's people regularly. If you forsake that assembling, you're going to end up forsaking the faith. Those two things go together. If we're not going to drift from the truth, we've got to be anchored to the church. And again, this is because nobody can live the Christian life in isolation. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian who's just going to go off and do his own thing and and in isolation from the rest of the community, in isolation from the body of Christ, he's going to live a faithful Christian life. You cannot do it. You you cannot, I cannot pluck my eyeball out, sever it from the body and and have my eye work the way that it should. It only functions as part of a larger whole, part of the body. And so it is for Christians. We've got to be a part of the body, a part of the community. You have to live in a Christian community. You are God's child, yes, but you are not an only child. You are part of a larger family. There's another reason people wander. Wandering can seem very exciting, especially for younger people who have grown up in the church and feel like they don't know anything else. They want to know what life is like on the outside. And so they wander because they get really, really curious. And and they look around at what's going on in the world around them. And and, and non-Christians they know and... While those worldly entertainments look really exciting, those worldly philosophies sound really exciting. And so this can be very enticing to people who do not know better. There's a kind of spiritual wanderlust that can draw people away from the truth. It's fun at first to wander off in the woods. That can be really fun, really exciting. Just go wander off into the woods. But if you get lost and you cannot find your way back home, what happens? You need somebody to come and find you. You need that park ranger or a search and rescue team to come out and to pursue you and find you and bring you home. And that's the kind of thing James is talking about here. You don't want to be the one who wanders off in the woods and gets lost. Or think about, to use Jesus' analogy, that one sheep that wanders away from the fold. And it can't find its way back to the rest of the flock. So the shepherd has to go out and search for it. And he's got to get to the sheep, hopefully, before the wolves get to the sheep and devour it. Or think of it this way. You know, it might be really, really exciting to swim way out into the ocean. But if you drift out too far, you're not going to be able to swim back in. You're going to need a lifeguard to come and get you. Or if you get really far out, maybe the coast guard to come and get you. That's what James has in mind here. The person who has wandered in this case, has not yet fully apostatized from the faith. He has not yet openly renounced Christ or been excommunicated, but he is headed in that direction unless others stage some kind of intervention to reclaim the wanderer, to rescue him. They are at risk of apostasy. Here's another reason some people wander. The Christian life turns out to be harder than they expected. They expected it to be rather easy. They thought the cost of discipleship would be rather cheap. And so when it turns out the Christian life is really hard, when it means making sacrifices, when it means denying yourself, when it might mean being socially ostracized, when it means being mocked and and called names and excluded from the cool table, all of a sudden that's a price they don't want to pay. And they start to think, you know, I didn't think I signed up for this. If following Christ is going to cost me popularity or acceptance or maybe even my job, then I'm out of here. And so they start to 
wonder. People who think the Christian faith can be tacked on to an otherwise worldly life, they always end up wandering from the truth when it gets hard to hold on to the truth, when it gets hard to believe that truth and confess that truth and practice that truth. Still another way people can wander is if they are influenced by or choose to follow a false teacher. In fact, it's really interesting here, the term that is used here for wanderer is used of false teachers themselves. In 2 Peter 2.15, Peter describes false teachers as those who have wandered from the right way. They've they've wandered off, They've, they've strayed off course, and of course now they're influencing others. False teachers are wanderers, and so those who follow them are wanderers too. And I believe this is one of the hugest issues we face in the church today. This is one of the main ways wandering takes place in the church today. There are a lot of false teachers in the church today. What we are seeing in the church today is the result of too many false teachers never being confronted, never having their errors challenged or corrected. And so you end up in a situation where you have these very famous teachers in the church with huge social media followings, perhaps huge congregations, and yet they are wanderers, and those who follow them are wanderers now as well. Let's give you some examples of this. There are teachers out there who claim that God speaks to them directly, giving them new revelation, whether it is new verbal revelation or new revelation in a dream. And we have to say no to that, whether it's Mark Driscoll or Beth Moore or somebody else, does not matter. God does not give new revelation today. God speaks to us, but he speaks to us here in this book. This is God's word to us. If you want to hear God speaking to you today, open up your Bible. Listen to the word of God. Read the word of God. That's where he speaks to you. Those teachers who go around saying, God told me this, God told me that. That that, that gives incredible power to that teacher to manipulate his followers. And again and again, that's what happens. It's a form of wandering. You have false teachers today who have wandered from the truth of Scripture on sex and gender issues. No doubt, caving into pressure from the culture. And so they will tell us, women pastors are just fine. Women are equal with men, therefore women pastors are just fine. Or you can be a gay Christian. You can have a gay sexual orientation and, and, and combine that with your Christianity into an identity. And again, we have to say to that, no. These are forms of wandering. These categories are rejected by Scripture. They simply do not exist biblically. You cannot have a woman pastor in Scripture. I won't go into all the reasons for that, but you simply can't. And to talk about a gay Christian, that's a contradiction in terms. I'm not saying somebody can't struggle with certain sins, but to make that your identity, that's a contradiction in terms. You have others in the church today who are teaching what has come to be called critical race theory, which is really an anti-gospel ideology, because in the end, and certainly there's all kinds of, uh, it's quite complicated philosophically, I won't get into that, but in the end it comes down to this. It judges and categorizes people by their skin color rather than their character. 
And so critical race theory, you see this anywhere where critical race theory is taught, what happens? It breeds division and it makes racial harmony impossible. And you have a lot of people in the church who are peddling critical race theory saying this is the Christian way to look at race. No, they have wandered from the truth. And they are preaching a different gospel. You have still other false teachers who promote a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Who teach God always wants you happy and prosperous. And if you are suffering, it is obviously because you lack faith. It's obviously because you're in sin in some way. That's why you're suffering. This whole view, you can have your best life now. That's just garbage. James begins this letter talking about how God purposely designs trials for us to mature us, to strengthen us. God has a good purpose in the trials he sends us. Those like Joel Osteen or others who who peddle this kind of health, wealth, and prosperity God, it's just garbage. It's a form of wandering from the truth. These false teachers are wanderers, and those who follow them are wandering as well. They are wandering from the truth. They have departed from the body of doctrine and the pattern of living given to us in the scriptures. Now, Scripture is full of commands to not just let people drift off to their own eternal destruction without seeking to rescue them. That's, again, what James is talking about here. When you see somebody start to wander, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to pursue them. So if you notice this going on in the life of a fellow church member, you are called upon here to address it. In fact, all throughout Scripture we see this. In Deuteronomy 22, we read it this morning. In the Old Testament law, it teaches that if you see your brother's ox or sheep going astray, you shall not ignore it. No, you shall track down that wandering ox or sheep and take it back to your brother. Now, it's not really ox and sheep that God cares about. Well, he does care about them, but not the way he cares about humans. So what does this law really mean? Well, if you're supposed to return your brother's ox or sheep when it wanders, how much should you seek to return your brother himself when he wanders? If you're supposed to return his ox or or sheep when it wanders, how much more should you seek to return your brother himself when you see him wandering? You are not to ignore it. You're to do something about it. The prophet Ezekiel was told that he would be God's watchman. And really, that's what James is telling us here. We're all watchmen over one another. And and Ezekiel is told that he is to warn those who are wandering into wickedness. And if he refuses to do so, if he refuses to warn those he sees straying into wickedness, their blood will be on his hand. Jude 22 says we are to save those who wander by pulling them out of the fire. It's as though they're falling into hellfire. And Jude says, reach in and pull them out before the flames of, fire, of hellfire engulf them. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, warn the disorderly. 2 Thessalonians 3 says to give a brotherly admonishment to those in the church who are disobeying Paul's letter. In Matthew 18, after Jesus gives the parable of the lost sheep, he lays out a church discipline process that can be used to reclaim those who wander. If simply going to the person on your own doesn't do it, then you can grab some leaders in the church, some, some elders to go with you to the person and see if that works. There's a whole process there laid out in Matthew 18. In Luke 17, Jesus says, if a brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. But there's that rebuke that is to be 
given. Let's unpack this just a little bit further. When we see a brother wandering in any of these ways, what do we do? James says we are to turn back the wanderer. Uh, We're to turn him back. It could also be translated, we are to convert the wanderer. That's actually even a a more common translation for uh, this this term, this Greek word when it shows up. This this term, turning back or converting, it can be used to describe a non-Christian who becomes a Christian for the first time. That non-Christian is converted to the faith, we might say. So in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Peter is preaching to a bunch of unbelieving Jews, and he preaches to them, repent and be converted. That's the same word James uses here. But it can also be used to describe a Christian who has fallen and who needs to repent and be restored, who needs to have his life reoriented. He needs to be reconverted, we might say, converted again. And so this is a term that describes a spiritual turning, a spiritual awakening, a spiritual reorienting of one's life. That's what James is talking about here. It's the same term that's used in Luke to describe what Peter will do after he denies Jesus three times. In Luke 22, Jesus says to Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Satan wants to have you. But Jesus says to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, that's the word James uses, when you have turned back to me, strengthen your brothers. So what's going to happen to Peter? Peter's going to wander. He's going to wander from the truth, but then he's going to return. He's going to be reconverted. He's going to turn back to the truth. He's an example here of exactly what James is talking about. Now, what does it mean to go after the wanderer? How do we do this? Or let me ask the question this way. Why do we often fail to do this? Why does this often not happen when it should have happened? All too often in the church, we don't go after the wanderer. We simply let someone drift away. We see it when it's all said and done and the person has apostatized. We'll even talk about how I saw that coming. But did anybody do anything about it? Sometimes I think we don't want to confront the wandering person about his sin because we don't want to risk a friendship. I think especially in polite southern culture, That's just not something you do. It would be considered rude to do so. But if that's the case, I would say we're not called to be Southern. We're called to be Christian. And so God's demands trump cultural expectations and cultural norms. God demands that we do this. Now understand, there's another side of this. James is not telling us here to be meddlesome busybodies, to be a kind of person. You know, there is that kind of person who all too quickly inserts himself into places where he does not belong. He inserts himself into conversations and so forth where he really doesn't belong. James is not saying that. And there are other places in the New Testament where we are warned about being busybodies. So there's a time to mind your own business and a time to get into somebody else's business. And it takes wisdom to know. But just realize there are also ways of of, of being meddlesome. And you might say, well, I'm going after the wanderer when really that's not what you're doing. But the bottom line is this. We have to be willing to put truth ahead of personal convenience. We even have to be willing to put truth ahead of friendship. If you will not go to your brother who is wandering because you do not want to risk the friendship, you don't really love your friend. You just don't. That's what 
James is showing us here. You can't just mind your own business and let a person drift off to his own destruction because the purity of the church is your business. It is something you're called to care for and take responsibility for. Would you tell a lifeguard to mind his own business when someone is drowning? No. The lifeguard leaves most swimmers alone. The the lifeguard leaves most swimmers alone. But the moment someone starts drowning, he goes in after them. If he is a good lifeguard. And that's what James is saying here. We have to do this spiritually. When someone starts to drown spiritually, we've got to be the lifeguards who rush into the water to bring that person back to safety. And notice here, this is not just a job for elders or deacons. Sure, pastors and and ruling elders especially have a role in this. And you might say a more official role in this work. But James is addressing this to the whole church community. If you're a part of a church, this is part of your responsibility. Again, perseverance is a community project. The church community, the community as a whole, acts as guardrails to keep us on the straight and narrow path. You need others to be guardrails for you, and you need to act as guardrails for others. Another reason we're not willing to pursue the wanderer and confront the sins of others is we secretly delight in their failures. C.S. Lewis has got some great stuff on this. I won't read it to you. But but C.S. Lewis says this is really perfect hatred. This is hatred perfected. When you delight in the failings and sins of others. But as terrible as it is, it is all too common. It really does happen in the church. We are so quick to believe the worst about our brothers, we somehow think that their failures will make us look better. And so we see other people failing or wandering or drifting and we think, aha, their moral and spiritual failures will make me look morally and spiritually superior. Now I can look down on them. And I've always wanted to do that. And so we delight in the failures of others. One way you can see this play out, one way you know that this is happening, is when someone has started to wander from the truth. And instead of the community going after that person and pursuing the person who has wandered, they start to gossip about him. They don't talk to him, they talk about him. They don't talk to him about his sin, they talk about his sin behind his back. Then you can know this is happening. So perverse spiritual pride can keep us from saving the wanderer. Another issue here is going to the wanderer to confront him. So we do that. We go to the person who is wandering. But we confront him in a prideful and arrogant way. Think about the Pharisees. The Pharisees had no problem confronting people at all. No problem confronting people they thought had wandered. But they did so in an arrogant, self-righteous way. They did so in a haughty, prideful way. So they were false judges because they would not go after the plank in their own eye and instead went after the speck in their brother's eye. They were false judges. See, we're called upon to do this confrontational work with those who wander, with those who stray. But when you do it, it has to be done in the right manner. When you go to confront someone in their sin, you must go in humility and charity. You must seek to be wise and winsome. You must say to yourself before you go, but for the grace of God, that be me. 
but for the grace of God, I be the wanderer. Galatians 6 really fills this out for us. Brothers, Paul says, if someone is caught in a sin or wanders into sin, we could say, using James' language, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, put a capital S on that, you who are spiritual, that is filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, lest you also be tempted. What is Paul saying there? He's saying, look, before you go sort someone else out, you've got to sort yourself out. Before you can go correct somebody else, and get them walking in the Spirit again. You've got to be walking in the Spirit yourself. Sort yourself out, then go approach your brother who has fallen into sin. Make sure you're really qualified for this work. Go to your brother carefully, prayerfully, lovingly, gently. You have to go, but you have to go in this way. You owe it to your brother to go, but you owe it to your brother to do it in the right spirit, the right frame of mind, with the right approach. And I'll tell you, you can do this in, in the right way. You can do this in just the way Paul describes. Go after the wander in a spirit of gentleness. And it might still end a friendship. You can be just as loving as, as it's possible for you to be. And it might still end your friendship. It might still cause offense, even if you're as kind and gentle as possible. You could cause offense. You could ruin the friendship. But you know what else could happen? You could save a life. You could become a soul saver. You could be like that lifeguard that drags the, 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 the drowning kid to shore. You could save a life. You could cover a multitude of sins. Because if you are able to be the means God uses to turn the wanderer back to the truth, you have saved him from hell. You have indeed covered the multitude of his sins. Now our culture would tell us to not do this. Our culture says it is cruel, even abusive, to confront people about their life choices and judge them for their life choices, critique, criticize their life choices. We're told we should be tolerant, we should be open-minded, we should live and let live. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you've heard me quote him several times recently, Dietrich Bonhoeffer rightly said this, nothing can be more cruel than that leniency that abandons others to their sin. Nothing could be more cruel than that leniency that abandons others to their sin. He says we must admonish one another. And this work of admonishment, he says, begins with friends who are close to one another. He says words of admonition must be risked when a lapse from God's word in doctrine or life endangers the community. He says nothing could be more cruel than that leniency that abandons others to their sin. He says nothing is more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian back from the path of sin. It is a service of mercy. So do not let the world's perverted definition of love mislead you. Do not let the world's perverted understanding of abuse or intolerance keep you from doing this. It is actually merciful and loving to pursue those who have strayed, those who have wandered. True love is love in the truth. True love speaks the truth. It is not loving to remain silent in the face of wandering. It is not loving to remain silent in the face of sin. 
When James speaks here of saving the wanderer's soul, he obviously doesn't mean you become the Savior instead of Jesus. What he means is this. God will use you to bring the wanderer back to Jesus. When you go after that wandering brother, you represent the good shepherd, the ministry of the good shepherd in his life. You represent the good shepherd pursuing the lost sheep. The fact that James can use this language and say, you will save his soul, that is simply astounding. And it shows us the privileged role God allows us to play in one another's lives. John Calvin captured it really well. He put it this way. He said, God has in a certain manner put the salvation of others in our hands. Whether or not others go to heaven or hell is in a certain measure up to you. Calvin says, not that we can bestow salvation on them, but that God, by our ministry, delivers and saves those who otherwise would fall into destruction. God uses people to save people. He uses his people to bring others to him, to bring others back to him. You can't save another soul. You can't cover their sins by loving wanderers in this way. This kind of love buries sin. That, that, that language there of covering sin, it's, it's such wonderful language because it's so theologically loaded in Scripture. Whenever that language of covering sins shows up, we might think of Psalm 32 where David says, blessed is the man who has his sins covered. But really we ought to think back to the Ark of the Covenant and to the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant and to the Day of Atonement when blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat to cover the sins of the people. That's what this is talking about. So, of course, all of that in the Ark of the Covenant and the Day of, the, uh, of Atonement, all of that pointed ahead to the cross. And so when James speaks here of sins being covered, he's really talking about the cross. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus' substitutionary and sacrificial death on our behalf. Where our sins are covered because Jesus shed his blood for them. Where our sins are covered because Jesus put himself in our place and took the punishment. He took the hellfire and the damnation and the death and the curse that we deserve. James' letter has more commands, has more imperatives per verse than any other book in Scripture, any other book in the New Testament at least. More commands, more imperatives than any other book in the New Testament per verse. And these commands, they just come at you in rapid fire throughout the book. Remember, this is why Martin Luther did not like the book of James. He thought it was a letter full of law rather than gospel. Now, we've seen as we've worked our way through this letter, actually, James does indeed preach the gospel in this letter in his own way. Maybe not in a way Luther could recognize, but the gospel's there again and again. But that is especially true here at the end. James ends with the gospel. He ends with a gospel note. He ends with gospel hope. This is the word of the gospel at the very end of the letter. This hope that even the wanderer can be saved. Even the wanderer can have his sins covered. See, James throughout this letter has told us there are only two ways. There is this stark antithesis between these two ways. There is the way of truth and there is the way of the lie. There is the way of righteousness that leads to life and there is the way of wandering that will lead to death. There is the way of heavenly wisdom which produces good fruit and there is the way of demonic wisdom which is poisonous. Two ways, two wisdoms, two outcomes. But James ends this letter 
with this word of hope and indeed this invitation. He's saying, even those who are on the wrong path, even those who have wandered from the right path are invited into this fold. They are invited back into the fold. And that is grace. That is the essence of the good news. James ends with this gospel, with the best news of all, the best hope, the best word of all. No matter what you have done, no matter what kind of life you've lived up until today, no matter what you've done or or how far you have strayed, no matter how far you have wandered from the truth, James here is pointing us back to our gracious God. Our gracious God, the Father. He's pointing us back to God the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. And that's how James ends this letter. He opens saying, I am a servant of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he ends pointing us to the grace of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what you've done, no matter how you've lived up to this very day, no matter how far from the truth you may have wandered, James is saying to you, there is hope. There is good news. You can be saved. That multitude of sins you have committed can be covered. Just remember this, he says. Turn to Jesus and keep on turning to Jesus. Turn to Jesus and be saved. Turn to Jesus and your sins, your multitude of sins will be covered. Let's pray together.